Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hey, Meister fans. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hello, everyone. This is Ben. Today in the show, we have Derek Lennon. Derek lives, works, and vacations in mountains around the world. He logs 200-plus ski days each year by chasing the endless winter. During the Northern Hemisphere winter, Derek is based in Big Sky, Montana. And in the, quote, summer, Derek is the lead guide at South America's premier backcountry snowcat operation, Ski ARPA. So, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. 200-plus days of skiing a year, Derek. You must be addicted. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I've, uh, I've been skiing since I was four years old, and... Uh, been chasing endless winter for about 18 seasons now. Wow. Before we get into your guiding career and some other inspiring stories for our listeners, how did you become so obsessed with skiing? Where did it all start? Uh, it all started with my dad. Every family vacation, we went skiing. I'd go skiing on the weekends, and that's quite a task when you grow up in North Carolina. <laughs> um, so it was it was just what I loved to do. Every chance I got, I'd, I'd get on skis and slide around, and it's a blast. So eventually you made your way out west, correct? That's correct. I uh, went to CU Boulder. I ended up skiing about five days a week every season and still graduated, which was impressive. Very uh, impressive. Yeah. Then I, uh, I ended up going up for one ski season. I was like, all right, I'm going to do one season and then I'm going to try to figure out what I'm going to do in the real world. And uh, that one season has well, it's turned into a lot. <laughs> Sounds like it. And so before we get into that, Derek, you've been on a ton of adventures and yeah, we'll talk about the ski guiding and the endless winter, but I first want to tell you and our listeners something, and this is a true story. When Russell and I started this podcast, we were talking about the people that we wanted on the show, and I had three types of people in mind. I would always use them as examples when I would tell people about it. I wanted an Everest climber. I wanted someone who has overcome a life-threatening injury and had this really inspirational comeback. And my third and final example was that I wanted somebody who had been attacked by a bear. And, <laughs> and survived. And survived, yes. And you told us that you have been attacked by a bear. Please tell me that story. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it was actually the day before I turned 16. I was on a Knowles trip in British Columbia. What does Knowles stand for? Knowles is the National Outdoor Leadership School. And uh, this was a backpacking trip that was lasted about a month. And this was right in the middle of the trip. So as remote as you can be in the wilderness. And we were hiking along and we saw this bear on the other side of a valley, probably about maybe a 30 minute hike for us. And what kind and of bear is this? It's a grizzly bear. Grizzly bear. Okay. So that's like the, that's the most aggressive kind, right? Yeah, you might say that. Okay. Um, so we kind of let the bear know we were there as that's what we were trained to do. And we were in a group of I think about five at that point in time. And the bear raced over to us and everything kind of slowed down into slow motion and it false charged us three times and then it circled us and circled us. Wow. And then it eventually wandered off down in the valley. And after we kind of cleaned ourselves up a little bit, we went to go explore and uh, it turns out that the bear and its two cubs were 
plane down in the river where our campsite was supposed to be. Oh, wow. Wow. So that must have been the fastest your heart has ever beat in your life. Yeah, it was uh, It's going about a million miles an hour. So it was definitely terrifying. And does that kind of experience change your life? It does. It just makes you appreciate being alive. It makes you realize how, how small you are in the scheme of things. How some bear just out there, probably never seen a person before, can just totally intimidate you. Yeah, were you using your bear training that they taught you in second grade? You have, too? Well, yeah, the outdoor, uh, what's that survival game well, aren't you called? Supposed to, are you supposed to play dead or do you climb up a tree? That's or true, yeah. What, do you, what did you do? So we tried to look big. Um, we had the bear spray ready, and oh. it was kind of one of those unfortunate situations with the bear spray, which is like a like a mace, basically. Mm-hmm. And we were going to spray it, but it was charging from basically the wind was coming right at us. So oh. if we sprayed, it would have hit us, which would have made a bad situation worse. To be completely honest, you say bear spray, but when I imagine like a multi-hundred-pound grizzly bear running toward you, does bear spray actually work? Uh, it's supposed to be the best thing available. Huh. It, it it really just shocks them more than a gun, which might make them angry. I mean, we could go on and on about camp stories. Uh, I've never actually... Well, I've seen a few grizzly bears, but we're in New England, so we yeah. only get black bears, and, and they're not as bad at all. But yeah, let's get into your career now. So you said after college, you took that season, and you skied, and, and it just hasn't really stopped from there. I mentioned ski ARPA in the bio. Maybe tell us what that is exactly. Certainly. So I got started as a ski instructor, and I, that was in Vail, Colorado, and I was there for seven seasons. And I moved up to Big Sky about three years ago, which is kind of my North American summary. But uh got down to Ski ARPA because my best friend from University of Colorado, his dad owned the place, and he invited us down to come check it out. That was in 2008. And since then, I've gone down every year except for one to guide. And it's been just an incredible experience. There's really nothing like Ski ARPA that I've ever seen on this planet. And to give our listeners a little overview of Ski ARPA, uh, you shared us a short video about this mountain, which actually just recently won an award. But there are two snowcats at this mountain, and it's pretty remote. How many people come to ski at Ski ARPA per day? Sure. So we have 22 guests per day, and we have roughly 5,000 acres that, that we own. Wow. So it's nice. And what does the trip look like? I mean, you're in Chile right now. What does the trip look like to get to the mountain? So most guests will fly into Santiago, which is the only airport there is. Then they'll drive, well, it's about two hours from the airport. And most of it's on some main roads up to Los Andes. And then you jump on a four-wheel drive road that has probably about 50 switchbacks. And it's, it's one lane. And you pass cactus and goats and it's just an incredible road, just to be honest. That's part of the experience. Then when you get out, you park in a parking lot, and we come out of our rock hut and say hello. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of built into the side of the mountain, and it has a pretty unique history. It's been around for, what, how many since? Uh, it would be the early 80s. I want to say 82 or 83. It's about the same age as I am. So this guy comes in, and he just finds this land and completely falls in love with it. Now that he's starting to get a little older, his son is starting to take it over. And then they hired some guides to basically run this ski area. It it just seems like more like a backcountry playground. It's like you're starting a ski area almost from scratch. That's exactly what it is. 
we're learning every day as we do it. And we're bringing in our experience from other aspects of the guiding world from North America and, and all over to kind of make this thing work. It's really a rustic feel to it. It's run by people like myself who are just passionate about skiing. We're definitely not getting rich, but we're having a blast. And I'm sure the whole rustic feel adds to the flavor. It sounds like a big challenge to keep this going. And are you trying to get this mountain to grow in popularity to bring more people there? Or do you kind of like it the way it is with, you know, 20, 25 people coming per day? You know, 20, 22 people a day is ideal because it gives you the feeling of being remote and in the wilderness and you're not worried about crowds or, or any of that. Um, our goal is to get that many people every day. Right now we'll have very busy days, especially right after it snows. And then some days we're running two to four people on the cat. Mm. So we would like to expand a bit, but I hope it doesn't change too much. The movie that Ben had uh, mentioned was Vaya a la Cumbre. Is that how nice. you pronounce it? That's correct. Okay, yeah. So basically this video talks about some of the history of the area and they bring up some of the barriers in South America to actually run a business. And they were talking about language barrier, political barriers, and then how the seasons are pretty much flip-flopped. Could you maybe talk about what it's like to work down there and experience some of those barriers? Nothing's clean cut down there. I mean, you, you work in the States and it's, okay, fill out this form, do this, here are the rules and everything else. And down there, we're, we have to get everything rubber stamped multiple times just to, to get our work visas or to get something fixed or to find clean diesel. There's little things like that that take a lot longer and it really eats up your time. You can't necessarily count on all the time. It's just everything takes a little longer than, than planned. And we're the, basically the crazy gringos that live in a rock hut. And when you live in a rock hut, you don't have cell phone. Well, we have cell phone service. We don't have internet. We don't have, well, we just got electricity last year for a couple hours a day. Oh, wow. um, so we're, we're totally off the grid, basically. So driving to town is a hour and a half experience. And then trying to figure out where to buy parts for piston bully snowcats is a bit challenging in a small town that really doesn't have much snowcat experience or even skiers for that matter. So you have this challenge of trying to grow the business, yet at the same time trying to maintain a rustic feel. Has that been one of the main drivers to hold you back from growing the business? Is like, okay, we don't have internet here. It definitely plays a large factor. Uh, we work with a company called Santiago Adventures, who runs most of our marketing and internet and transportation. And, and these guys are, are fantastic. But when it comes to being on the mountain, it's, it's a challenge. We don't have lodging up there. So people stay down in the vineyards of Chile where, you know, where they're growing the, the grapes to, for the wines you buy at the grocery store here. That doesn't sound terrible. <laughs> it's definitely not terrible, but people really want to stay on the mountain. And mm -hmm. that's our next goal is to, to get that on mountain lodging for people to come up and stay and really have the most incredible experience you can. The, the views are outstanding. So, One other thing that I actually wanted to mention, just kind of the relationship between this business that you guys have in South America and then also the locals that are actually around. And I remember in the video they mentioned, if you don't like someone, you let him go up to the top of the mountain. And that's kind of how they see these mountains and some of the skiing. Could you maybe talk about that and what they think of you guys going up there and, and living on the mountain? 
I would say that most of the locals think we're absolutely crazy. <laughs> so the town that we we're kind of based in Los Andes is a mining town and the people make their living going to the mines every day. Not many skiers are there. The The skiing population in Chile seems to come more from Santiago hmm. and it's surprisingly growing quickly we have seen a huge change in the amount of chileans that come skiing with us and it's awesome we I mean, we are the pr- premier backcountry snowcat operation and besides a couple of heli operations in chile mm. we're it and we're a little bit more affordable so people are coming to us for knowledge and skiing and just an awesome experience so it's changing quickly and uh it's really cool to watch Yeah, so you have this startup ski operation, which is, uh, like you said, growing in popularity. And between the short film Via a la Cumbre and then also the Chilean World Ski Tour was held there. Where do you see Ski Arpa in 10 years from now? It's a great question. Uh, What I would like to see is, so basically Ski Arpa is two valleys that have south-facing terrain, which is ideal in the southern hemisphere. And we can only access the first valley at this point in time. So I would love to see us get a summer road that would allow us to push snow into the second valley, which would open up another several thousand acres. Potentially, I'd love to see us running helicopter skiing off the backside, which would be amazing. So if you you stand at the top of ARPA and you think about it on the compass roads, kind of north through east through south is just untouched mountains in every direction. You can see Aconcagua, which is the highest peak outside of the Himalayas. And when you go from south to west to north, you're looking out over the vineyards of Chile and you can see the Pacific Ocean. So literally looking across the country of Chile with the turn of a head. There's nowhere else in South America that I know of that you can do that. Yeah, that sounds kind of scenic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a little bit breathtaking. Um, but I'd like to see potentially a, a summer operation going up there to help it be more viable. Right now, our our season starts in early July, as soon as we can push a road and get enough snow to make it happen. And we typically close around the Ocho, which is the 18th of September. That's basically the 4th of July of Chile. Hmm. So if we could get a little more business going in the summer and we can get lodging, a second valley and maybe a helicopter, I think we'd be sitting pretty. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. We'll have to come now and then 10 years and and just see if there's any differences just to make sure that these uh, statements come true. Crossing my fingers. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds awesome. And it's also, it's not like a normal ski area because there are no lifts really. It's just the the cat access. But when you have that, the guests really need to have a guide, someone like you to show them where the safe spots on the mountain and just where the good snow is. And so part of that is you have to have certain certifications. Could you maybe talk about some of the most important certifications that you have? I think you have like 13. Yeah, you have a lot of qualifications. We can't talk about all of them, but maybe just like important ones to prove that, you know, you know what you're doing. So I guess there are kind of three general categories of certifications in my my mind. There's first aid. I have a wilderness EMT, which is ideal for what I'm doing in Chile and and what I'm doing in the rest, rest of my free time. Avalanche certification, so I'm a level three avalanche certified with the American Avalanche Institute, and guiding certifications, which I'm currently climbing the AMGA ladder. The AMGA is the American Mountain Guide Association, and they have a track that goes for ski guides. Those three categories really are the the key components for guiding. So is this what you would call your career development? Yeah, definitely. I would say that the certifications help 
legitimize what you're doing. I make my living going skiing and having these certifications make it so I know what I'm doing. We're so glad that you're passionate about your job. I mean, we can hear it the way that you talk about Ski ARPA and you're willing to go down to South America pretty much every year to, to do this guiding. So that's awesome. Just and, willing. <laughs> and, and you actually, you brought up this quote, which is super interesting. It's by Confucius. Choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. How does that apply to you? And are you thinking when you wake up in the morning, all right, time to go do work? Or are you just saying, you know, let's go have a good day? It's honestly, it's time to go skiing. <laughs> you know, you can differentiate work and play because oftentimes the objectives are different and, and who you're going out with is different. But at the end of the day, we're going skiing, you know, whether it be at a Big Sky Ski Resort or Rogers Pass or Ski Arpa or Pacific Northwest. It's getting the ski boots on and being outside and doing what you enjoy. I, I really support it. I think too many people get trapped and they aren't able to escape. Going skiing is my escape. Yeah, and I think people get trapped just because maybe they have found some passion within what they're doing, but usually at the end of the day, there's responsibilities and you have to pay for things. And it puts so much pressure on the people that almost the safe route is the easiest route too. And then they feel more comfortable that way. Have you felt comfortable in your career? I have felt comfortable with it. I feel that I've made it work. I work hard, play hard, right? So I may work 30 days straight at the resort and then I get 10 days off to go play. Then I'll come back, I'll work hard and go someplace else. So it's worked for me. Obviously, it won't work for everybody, but it's definitely been good for me. And I have a lot of support from my family. So it's fantastic. Yeah, it definitely seems like something you have to be super passionate about to make work. You can't force the ski boots on every morning and it just wouldn't work, I don't think. But <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, to kind of move on a little bit, since you have been in the industry for so long, would you have one outdoorsy gear recommendation for our listeners? I certainly would. I, uh, I'm a big fan of Mystery Ranch's Blackjack airbag pack. It seems to me to be one of the better packs out there. It's easy to travel with. It's from the guys that did Dana Designs backpack back in the day. So their suspension's really good and highly recommend it. So explain to us quickly what an airbag backpack is because I don't think all of our listeners will know. So an airbag backpack is basically a, another form of safety in the backcountry for avalanches. The way it works is if you are unfortunately caught in an avalanche, you can pull the airbag, which is like a big balloon that comes out of the top of the pack. And it will ideally help you get to the surface instead of being buried. Yeah, so this is when you're sliding down with the avalanche still moving. You pull this and this big balloon comes out of your back and that is basically what we call the Brazilian nut theory from there where all <laughs> the largest nuts rise to the top. Exactly. Have you had the opportunity to use it in a real avalanche? Opportunity definitely has a positive connotation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've never deployed my bag, um, so I'm, I'm hoping I never will. It's just it's one more thing that I carry because it's one more form of safety in case you ever do need it. Well, g good for you. That obviously makes you a trusted guide because you, <laughs> the best way to avoid an avalanche is not to get in one. Do you see that as being an issue in the future, having all these pieces of gear that make it seem like you're so safe in the backcountry, but it's not as clear a picture as that? I certainly do. No, one, no one's an avalanche expert. It's wild snow out there that people play on. And it certainly seems to me, from my point of view, that the rise of touring equipment on sale and the ease of access out the backcountry gates and this allure of powder skiing that more and more people are getting out there and 
getting after it, which is fantastic, but we still need to be making all the smart decisions. And the more, you know, the easier it is to make the right decisions. So having all this gear that may make you feel safe as potentially a false sense of security. And that's where it gets a little questionable. You, you don't want to rely on that. You want to rely on good decision-making. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these people, they see the videos and they see all this media out there and then they don't really see you're digging snow pits to look at the snow quality before you're going out. And, and luckily, the people that are skiing at Ski Arpa, they're forced to have the guides. I'm not sure if they're always psyched about that because it's probably a little bit more expensive, but it's good that you guys are starting to implement some training courses and really educate them. And it's just seems like a really good package deal. It certainly is. I'd highly recommend it. We are starting to do some avalanche courses at Ski Arpa, and something that I hope to do here in, in Montana in the future. But a guide is a great thing because we can help you make decisions that you might not be able to make on your own. Yeah, Derek, Russell and I really enjoyed talking to you. To wrap this whole thing up, could you give our listeners just a couple of ways that they could connect with you? Certainly. So I've just started a blog. Uh, it's brand new. It's called A Mountain Journey. You can find it at amountainjourney.com. But I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, so social media seems to be the the easiest way for people to stay in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw on amountainjourney.com on your website that it's not just at Ski Arpa, it's not just Big Sky where you're from, but you know, if people are looking for just a general guide to do a unique trip, then shoot them an email. So definitely take advantage of that opportunity if uh, you don't know any guides or you're looking for a pretty cool adventure. Yeah. And one adventure I'm trying to work on right now is I just signed on with the Adventure Project and I'm starting to put together chips to go to Gulmarg, which I'm pretty thrilled about. So if anyone's interested, let me know. Yeah. We talked to Matt Appleford from the Adventure Project and not only does he have a great accent, but he also puts on a pretty good trip. So, (laughs) but anyway, thank you so much, Derek. Russell and I really enjoyed talking to you. For our listeners out there, you can find all the resources that we discussed at mountainjourney.com, via La Cumbre. How's that for my Spanish? <laughs> uh, at our website, mtnmeister.com. And then you can also, of course, find out more about Derek. So thank you so much, Derek. Thank you, guys. Meister fans, thank you so much for tuning in to Derek Lennon's episode. And if you've ever been to Chile and done some skiing yourself, comment on Derek Lennon's Facebook post for this episode. And also, we're on Instagram. If you take any really cool mountain pictures or you feel like a mountain meister, tag us in your Instagram posts. We want to see what you're up to. Ben, I'm not sure all the listeners know exactly what to do and when to post a picture of them being a mountain meister. So could you give them an example of your life? Yes, this is actually an example from both of our lives. The other weekend, Russell and I decided to ascend Mount Washington. And this is not a feat that is comparable to what our mountain meisters do. But, you know, we tried to ski down, except the ski down was filled with rocks everywhere. And Russell and I actually skied into many different rocks because it was very difficult to control your speed. So we posted a picture of that on Instagram. Go check it out. It's kind of funny. Yeah, definitely check out that picture on Instagram. And also join us next time when we have Rebecca Rush on the show. She was an adventure racer who hated mountain biking, but now she's the best in the world. Check it out then.